Hey, I hope you're doing well today. Merry Christmas to you. That is the season that we are in right now. My name is Andrew. I'm the lead pastor at Mountain Park Church in Niagara Falls, Canada. And this is the Mountain Park Church Podcast. Okay, as usual, I have a few things to say. I'm feeling a lot better than I was when I recorded this message last week. You'll you'll hear uh, I sound tired and slow and, uh, you know, a little bit out of it, which I kind of was, but I'm feeling great now. And this message um, reflects a shift and a turn for us. The whole fall, we've been talking about two things, our Vision 2030, And we've been in a series called Consecrated. That's actually the word that we believe God has given us prophetically for the life of our church in 2024. But it's actually, I believe there's a broader application across the body of Christ. We've been talking about this for weeks, that this season for us is what I would call a threshold season. We're moving from one reality into another. We're moving from one sort of moment in time across the Jordan, if we're gonna use that kind of biblical language, and into a new season. And I believe that that actually, that this is a season that we're experiencing globally. And there are invitations in this sort of threshold type of season from Jesus, and one of them is an invitation to consecration, an invitation to laying our lives down in a greater measure than we ever have, an invitation from Jesus to really be leader in different areas of our life in increased measure. And so that's what we're stepping into in 2024 in the life of our church. On January 9th, we're gonna start 21 days of prayer and fasting. We're gonna begin to apply this into the rhythms of our year. And I wanna just call you into that with us. We'll give you more information as it gets closer to that. But this series, this little mini one that you're about to hear called Dwell, this is our Advent series. It's gonna be this week and next week is really a call to refocus ourselves on the story of the victory of Jesus. As dark as it may seem right now, as hopeless as it seems, as desperate as it seems, as broken and dysfunctional and, you know, evil, dark, our world seems right now, we are given a counter story, a counter reality from scripture that it doesn't matter how dark and broken and dysfunctional life may be. It doesn't matter how dark and broken and dysfunctional your past might be. None of that, none of that is beyond the limits of Jesus to redeem and overcome. This is what we are drawing your attention to as we step into this next season, into 2024, into even deeper levels of uncertainty geopolitically around the globe and and, and all of that. It just seems like the world is literally on fire and people are kind of running for the hills. People are 
um, they're scared and they're intimidated and they're confused. We as followers of Jesus have actually got cause for great hope and great joy. We are people who walk in the name and the authority of Jesus. We are the ones who carry his kingdom on the earth. And he has said that the gates of hell cannot and will not prevail against his advancing kingdom. I want to just set that perspective in mind for you as we step into the content for this week. It's not lost on me that if you ask the average person whether they follow Jesus or not, if you ask them about what's going on in their life or their family or the world, I think the response more often than not is one of hopelessness, disillusionment. What we often hear inside and outside of the realm of the followers of Jesus in our secular culture and in our religious culture is that things are dark and confusing And in the last number of years, that's actually, in a lot of cases, become the message of the church. Things are just broken. And we look at what's happening around us in society and we say, look at this, look at this, look at that, as evidence that the darkness is getting darker. The story of Advent, the story of Jesus coming into the world is a story of hope that the darkness can get as dark as it wants to get. When the light comes, it doesn't matter if it's a small candle in a ginormous room, the light expels the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. The whole story of the gospel is of the victory and triumph of Jesus. Jesus' words to Peter um, at literally a place called the gates of hell, geographically speaking, his words to Peter were that the gates of hell would never be able to prevail against the kingdom of God and the people of God. Jesus' gospel was not a gospel of retreat and lick your wounds. Jesus' gospel was a gospel of go cross boundary lines and go into dark places because when my kingdom is present, the darkness will not be able to prevail against it. And in the last number of years in different sort of streams of the church, we've been tempted, and I've been tempted, we've been tempted to retreat behind these fortress walls and solidify our doctrines and solidify what separates us from the world around us and retreat into these areas of safety with people that only believe what we believe about Jesus and about sexuality and about the kingdom and about culture and about po uh, politics and all of these things. The church has become, in many ways, a fortress of self-protection and isolation instead of a cathedral of the presence and power of God. 
And we see this all through the story of Scripture in Isaiah 9. Isaiah is writing in a time historically of great darkness, of great disillusionment and disappointment. Israel is beginning to suffer the consequences of not following Yahweh in the way that he invited them to. And it says this in Isaiah 9, nevertheless, I love those transitionary words, nevertheless, the time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled, but there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea will be filled with glory. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. The story of Jesus and the story of the gospels is the declaration that darkness cannot prevail and will not. And the invitation of Jesus is to join with him in walking in the light of the kingdom, not in a fear of the dark. And it's a hard thing for us to do. It's a hard thing for me to do. Often our, our first gut response to what's going on in the world, the darkness of the world, is to be afraid of it. I can't go there, I can't talk to this person, I can't engage with this or that or the other thing. I need to be set apart and holy, and those are true things. But what we see in the contrast between the Old and New Testament, even as we have been talking about this word for 2024 for us, consecrated, what we see, there's a, a marked shift from the process of consecration in the Old Testament to the process of consecration in the New Testament. And Janet mentioned this in week one of the consecrated series. Something different happens when Jesus enters the scene. And he starts doing unconscionable things for a Jewish rabbi, meaning he starts touching dead bodies and he doesn't become defiled. They raise to life. He starts touching lepers and he doesn't become defiled by leprosy. He doesn't become outcast and unclean. They become clean. The kingdom of God, the light of the kingdom begins to shine. And what they begin to notice, and I think it just absolutely dumbfounded the first disciples and apostles and followers of Jesus. How can this possibly be right or happening? Because we're not seeing the, the expansion of the kingdom as we retreat, you know, into the caves in the mountains. We're seeing the expansion of the kingdom of God as Jesus moves into dark places and he turns what is unclean and broken and dark into something clean. And the invitation of Jesus to anyone that he healed or touched was not first bow and give allegiance to me and swear fealty to me. That's not the invitation of Jesus. His invitation was repent. Change the way you view 
the priorities of your life. Change your thinking. Change your assessment of what is most important. Your assessment of what is worth the greatest amount of your energy and capacity and time. Change those things. And run the other way because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Often we have this um, terribly sanitized view of the Christmas story. But the Christmas story, I, I mean, I don't want to harp on, you know, away in a manger, but it's not, I don't think it's super biblical, <laughs> that song. It's a, it's a sanitized, plasticized Christianese version of the story. What was scandalous and unthinkable, we've made sort of, you know, the hallmark um, sort of plastic figurine version. What Jesus was born into was not this perfect uh, environment. There's no indication in scripture that he did not cry. I don't know where that line comes from in the song. There's even great scholarly debate as to what that in was, actually. Either way, what we know about that is in the culture, the Middle Eastern culture that Jesus was born into, hospitality was like at a premium. The way you treated your guest was everything. Regardless of what that inn was physically, whether it was a shepherd's cave out in the middle of nowhere or it was some kind of residence, no one would treat their guest, let alone a pregnant woman, in the way that Mary was treated, if there was not some kind of scandal associated with it. Jesus doesn't bring the light into this perfect environment. The light begins to come in a broken, dark, dysfunctional, scandalous place. I want to just make a few comments about Matthew and the you're probably your favorite chapter of Scripture, which is Matthew chapter 1. And I'm joking. Those of you who know what Matthew 1 is, you're like, mm-mm. But we're going to go there. Let's kind of turn to Matthew chapter 1. And I just have a few comments to make about that this morning. And this is a record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah, a descendant of David and Abraham. I just want to make a note there. Matthew, if you would dig into the original language, is literally saying this is a rewriting of Genesis 1. Most of us live in one way or another with this Genesis 1 to 3 framework, which is God made everything and it was good, and then man screwed it up and now it's all busted and broken and irredeemable almost. Most of you and me live our lives hyper-focused on Genesis 3, your failure, your sin, and what disqualifies you from walking out the purposes of God in your life. Most of you live stuck in Genesis 3 
Matthew comes onto the scene and he says, I'm going to rewrite Genesis. Because the focus is not on what's broken and what's wrong. The focus is on what God has intervened to do to redeem what has been broken and wrong. Matthew begins this literally, if you were coming from a, a first century Jewish context, he's literally saying, I'm rewriting the story because our emphasis is on the wrong place. If you are hyper-focused about your sin and that, you know, sort of the reformed, I'm a worm theology and, you know, everything, I'm, I'm inherently broken, sinful, disgusting to God, I'll never get things right, then your emphasis is not in the right spot, according to Matthew and according to New Testament scripture. So Matthew says we need to actually rethink this story. And the emphasis of this story is not on what is broken, but what has come as a result of that brokenness. What is the answer of God to that brokenness. It's not to sit us down and for eternity chastise us so that we know how broken and sinful and dysfunctional and, you know, whatever we are. The answer of God in the middle of that brokenness is to bring hope and life and restoration. So Matthew is rewriting Genesis 1 two, and three. And he's drawing our attention to what God has done in response, not where we are a failure. He continues, Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. First big problem. If Matthew's trying to write a genealogy as a good Jewish boy, he's already failed. He has absolutely butchered the purpose of a genealogy in first century Jewish ancient Eastern context was to establish your credentials was to establish the purity of your bloodline, was to establish that you were a person above reproach, that you belonged to a, a class of people that was greater than or higher than anyone else. The purpose of the genealogy was to link you to the things that demonstrated your value and your worth, your position and your authority. And Matthew breaks all of the rules Number one, I mean, just by nature of including a woman. Now, this is first century thinking, right? But typically in Matthew's culture, and we can't give in to chronological snobbery. Matthew was not unintelligent. The, the, the men and women who have lived in antiquity were not stupid. Just because they think differently than we do does not make them inferior intellectually. Matthew knows exactly what he's trying to do. And he includes a woman, first of all, that was just not standard protocol for addressing genealogical record. It was passed from man to man, father to father. So Matthew includes a woman. That would have been the first sort of like, whoa, for his contemporaries would have been like, whoa, that's weird. Why would he say that? 
And then specifically, we're gonna keep reading here, the women that he includes absolutely tarnish. Absolutely, from a human standpoint, they absolutely tarnish the lineage, the physical human lineage of David and Jesus. They, Matthew is basically walking through here and he's saying, here's every reason why Jesus should be disqualified. Every reason, from a human standpoint. These are the reasons why Jesus is not or should not, from that perspective, be qualified to be the Messiah. Tamar is mentioned. And her story is one of incest, of tricking her father-in-law into getting her pregnant so that she could continue the family line. You can find that story in Genesis. It's not a story of virtue. It's a story that highlights broken, dysfunctional family relationships. It goes on to say, Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadab. Aminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz. In brackets, this doesn't need to be here, Matthew, but Matthew adds it. Whose mother was Rahab. Who's Rahab? We've just been in the story where Rahab is found. Rahab is the prostitute in Jericho. She's not Israeli. She's not Jewish. And she's a prostitute in Canaanite territory. There's so many reasons why if Matthew was trying to, to create a human case for the lineage of Jesus, why he would have disregarded Rahab. He would never mention her if he was just trying to give you the highlight reel of all of the best things that qualify Jesus in his lineage. He continues, Boaz was the father of Obed. Brackets again, here goes Matthew again, whose mother was Ruth. Ruth was a Moabites. Ruth was also not Jewish. She wasn't part of the chosen people. And she was part of actually a, a community of people who had been forbidden by God. I think it's for 10 to 12 generations from entering into the temple, from entering into the worship practices of Israel. And yet Matthew brings her out front and center. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon. Another brackets, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. In many translations, and I think in the original, it doesn't even mention her name because it's so scandalous. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the father of Abijah. Abijah was the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. 
Jehoshaphat was the father of Jehoram. Jehoram was the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Joshim. Joshim was the father of Ahaz. Ahaz was the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. Manasseh was the father of Ammon. Ammon was the father of Josiah. Josiah was the father of Jehoiakim and his brothers born at the time of the exile in Babylon. So Matthew has gone through two sections now. He's gone through this section where he's included these scandalous stories in the family line. And he's included people in this lineage that should not be included. They are the disqualifiers. Now he moves into section two and he starts to talk about the men who should have lived for God. He starts to talk about the people who should have ruled justly, who should have been obedient to God, and none of them do. The ones who were unqualified, Matthew adds them in. He qualifies them. The ones who should have been in and qualified, he points out, they're the ones who have actually tainted this story. They're the ones who lead Israel down a path that ends in judgment and exile. You see what Matthew is doing here? He's totally upending the, the normal narrative that would have existed in his generation and in his time. After the Babylonian exile, so now Matthew is coming into his third section here of this genealogy. Jehoiakim was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abi, uh, Abiud. Abiud was the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok was the father of Achim. Achim was the father of Eliud. Eliud was the father of Elizar. Elizar was the father of Mathan. Mathan was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Mary gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. He concludes this section. All those listed above include 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the Babylonian exile, and 14 from the Babylonian exile to the Messiah. Why in the world is Matthew starting his introduction to the life of Jesus with what we would consider a dreadfully boring genealogy. He's doing it to show that the kingdom of Jesus is a culturally different kingdom. It, by its very substance and nature, is a counter kingdom. And I have just a really simple point I feel like the Spirit has invited me to make here today. So often in our lives, our attention and our drive and our focus is on the shame and the regret and the pain of what we deem to be disqualifying in God's presence. The very things that would keep it dark, 
that would hold back the, the sun from breaking the horizon and beginning to pour light on the earth are the very things that we stand before God over and over and over again. How many times do we repent and say, I'm sorry? How often have you recommitted your life to God because you just can't get over the shame of sin and bondage, the, the condemnation that you feel, the regret, the guilt so often in our Life, we live these two, these two tracks, and, and one is that internally we are being ravaged by condemnation and guilt and shame. And all we see is what's broken and disqualifying. That's all we see about ourselves, is why God would not use us, how he can't work with us, what, what makes us weak and unusable to God. That's internally what we walk around with. But externally, when we talk about our life and our stories and our family and the reality of those things, we don't tell that story. We just tell the good parts because we want to fit in. We want to be seen as acceptable and capable and socially, you know, apropos and all of those things. And we have this beautiful gift in Scripture of Matthew and the other gospel writers and New Testament writers giving us this unvarnished, unfiltered look at reality. I think this genealogy from Matthew is an emphatic statement that it doesn't matter how dark it gets. It doesn't matter how evil the day is. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you regret. It doesn't matter what fills you with shame and all of those things. Jesus is greater than. You know, for those of you who wake up early before the sunrise, it's earlier in the winter to do that. <laughs> what you get to see on a beautiful day is that moment where the sun cracks the horizon. When that happens, you're not, you know, your eyes aren't assaulted with the blazing light of the noonday sun. It's this gentle, beautiful cresting of the horizon that lets you know the night is over. That Light triumphs over dark. Those of you who sleep in, you never get to see it. It's your own fault. You just wake up and it's 10 o'clock and the sun is blazing. And you're like, I thought that's what it's always like. <laughs> no, it's not. It's more beautiful than that. But the entrance of Jesus into the human story is this counter narrative of God stepping into the darkness of humanity's reality, doing what is unthinkable amongst the gods of their day. To Matthew's contemporaries and the first century Jewish and Gentile followers of Jesus, it was unthinkable that the gods would come down into brokenness and bring relief 
and renewal and restoration. That was unconscionable. The gods didn't do that. But Jesus did. And he begins to upend this story. And for some of you, internally, even as we enter into the holidays and you think about family get-togethers, that's not a cause for joy. That's a cause for panic and stress because it's a reminder of the broken relationships that you have and that you live with. For some of you, this time of year is just one that you want to get over with and be done with as quickly as possible because there's so much pain associated with it. And the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of Jesus is that he enters into that place with us. He doesn't whisk us away to some, you know, island of paradise. He enters into the darkness. He enters into that place of regret and shame and brokenness and trauma and pain. The, the fallout of decisions you've made that you would love to, with everything in you, take back. Jesus doesn't just kind of slide those to the side. He enters into that with you. And his promise is to be with you in it, not take you from it. There is... Um, There's a difficulty that we face when we are reviewing our life and the stuff that is hard and difficult. Often we're tempted to ask this question that begins with the word why. But I think that's the wrong question. Just incessantly asking God why he allowed something to happen to you the way that it did is not the right question question to ask. The story of the Gospels is the story of Jesus entering into our darkness and brokenness and being present with us. Why is not the right question. You'll never, ever get an answer this side of eternity as to why the things that have happened to you that have caused you the greatest pain happened. The invitation of Matthew here is not to go through this and go, why, 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 why? The invitation, as we see in chapter two, is to introduce the who and the what. What I want to just admonish you with today is not to be incessantly asking God, why did you let this happen or that happen or why, 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 why? but to actually redirect your attention to the person of Jesus and what he has to offer, which is, I will be with you. I am present with you in the middle of this. That there's nothing in your life that I will not stand in the middle of the hurricane with you on. There's nothing that you've experienced that I cannot renew, that I cannot rewrite, that I cannot bring healing and restoration and life into. There's nothing that has happened to you or that you've done that could ever, ever trump 
by power and authority over those things. The invitation of Jesus that we see in the gospels and we see in this Christmas story is an invitation to say, Jesus, would you be with me in the middle of this? For us to incessantly ask why is only gonna lead us to greater discouragement and disillusionment because we'll never find the answer. The question is, Jesus, would you be with me in the middle of this? And his answer is, yes, I will and I am. I am Emmanuel, God with you. And because Jesus is present, as the psalmist says, we have everything we need. So I just want to allow you to enter into this lingering time. Again, this time is coming from a story in Exodus 33 where Joshua would linger in the presence of God in the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, even after Moses had left. Joshua would stay with God in his presence. And this is just a really small way for us to cultivate the presence of God, to be a people of the presence of God. And so no, it doesn't matter what's going on around you. It doesn't matter what you're doing, whether you're driving or working out or, you know, you're in the mall shopping right now and listening to me. I don't know why you'd be doing that, but it doesn't matter what's going on. The Holy Spirit wants to speak to you about some of these things. He wants to speak to you about the perspective of Jesus, the King, over your past, your present, and your future. I love this quote from um, Frederick Dale Bruner who wrote a masterful commentary on the book of Matthew. He says this, one of the purposes of the genealogy in Matthew chapter one is to teach people that God is Lord over the past, present, and future. The question really is not why, but it's what do you want me to know right now, today, about these things. I wanna just invite you just to quietly, uh, you know, between you and God even right now, if there's people around you or whatever, just quietly under your breath, just say, Holy Spirit, what is it you want me to know right now? as we head into this Christmas season, I don't know when you're gonna be listening to this, but I'm just a few days uh, before Christmas here as we sit and record this. I wanna just remind you 
that this genealogy is deeply linked to the nature and character of God. And as Matthew is penning this genealogy, he's penning a sermon about God's absolute power and authority. This genealogy, as you read the names on it, is a declaration that nothing can stop God's plans. No sin, no impossible circumstance, no disqualifying measures, nothing can hinder God's plans. And I wanna just, just declare that over your life, over my own life and my family right now. Those things that you have walked around that have become um, you know, fortresses of shame and regret and all of that disqualifying reasons as to why God would never use you again or use you in the future. Th those are absolutely lies of the enemy. This genealogy is a reminder that God's purpose and his call on your life is irrevocable. And the call of God in this season is to bring these things back to the feet of Jesus and begin to walk again in the joy of his presence, in the power of his kingdom, in the fullness of his grace and his mercy. You are deeply loved. See you next week.